I will ask you to thumb in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. We are starting a new series here this week, so please turn to Matthew chapter 1, and we are going to look at the first 17 verses this morning. So once you're there, then I will ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. And these are the words of God. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Selmon, and Selmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jehoiakim, sorry, Jeconiah, and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azar, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer, the father of Methan, and Methan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, to whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ. 14 generations, and you may be seated. Well, we must be in a church that is committed to verse-by-verse exposition, (laughs) because we just read that, and we're going to have a sermon on that, if you can believe it, but I am looking forward to it. First, I'm going to tell you a story. I, I guess maybe I need to quit telling farming stories, but it's in my blood, so I'll tell one more. Uh... When Tanya and me started farming, we started farming in Landmark on the farm that uh, I had originally grown up on. And it was a meaningful place to me, not just because I grew up there, but I'm the kind of person where history actually means quite a bit to me. Uh, And my great-grandfather, Plett, actually owned title to the piece of land that we were on when we farmed there. And so when an opportunity came up for us to move to her family farm in Blumenort, it was a real struggle for me. There was an opportunity there waiting for us, but my sense of history and my sense of roots actually made it really difficult for me to wrap my head around moving. But we did. And when we moved there, I found out my grandma Unger took me aside and she said, do you know who built that hip roof barn on your yard? I said, I have no idea. I was assuming Grandpa Barkman, but I, I, I really don't know. And she said, no, no, that barn comes from your family. Uh, she said that my grandpa, Taves, so this is my great-great-grandfather, Her grandfather, Taves, had built that barn in Greenland in 1914. And Tanya's grandpa bought it from him and moved it to Blumenort. And suddenly I felt a bit of a personal family connection to the farm that we were now on. In a very real way, the past, my my past, had gone on ahead of me and was sitting there waiting for me to show up. Or so it felt like. And we're going to talk about how that works on a bigger scale this morning. The genealogy of Jesus is far richer than one might expect. And when we study family trees, when we study genealogy, we tend to look back, right? We look back up the family tree at the people who brought us here. But faithful Jews, as you'll notice in your Bible, reading these stories, they tended to look at family trees the opposite way. They tended to look forward at the coming seed, not back at what was behind them. Uh, And this is exactly why there is such a curse in the Old Testament to being cut off or to being disinherited or for the women who were barren. This is why the weight was on them because they knew that the seed would not continue on through them. And this was very important as they looked forward 
to the promised seed. And this is also why such good genealogical records were kept by the Jewish people, because they were fascinated with where the Messiah would come from. And so they kept close track, and there was libraries filled with their genealogy, so much so that actually at one point when they come back to the land, some people aren't allowed to worship because they can't prove that they actually belong here. Genealogy was very important to the people. And they all hoped that the Messiah would come through their own lines. And presuming upon past ancestry was one of the sins of the Pharisees. And they were looking back instead of looking forward, right? They, well, we're sons of Abraham, and so uh, there's nothing more for me to do, right? I, I was just born a son of Abraham, so I'm, I guess I'm good, right? They were looking back instead of forward. They couldn't screw up because they're sons of Abraham. They had it made. Whereas faithful Jews were looking forward how they could be a blessing to future generations and to see the promised seed come through them. So on the surface... The genealogies of the Bible may seem dry or uninteresting. And sometimes, maybe you fall into the temptation when you're doing your Bible in a year reading program, you get to the genealogies and you start reading a lot faster. (laughs) Does that happen to any of you? You start scanning instead of reading? But you might be missing out on more than you think when you don't look at those names and start drawing connections to the stories behind those names. These genealogies are here for our instruction. These are the words of God, after all. And they accomplish a number of things. First off, and maybe one of the important things, is genealogies show us that the Bible is a Bible, it's a book of history, it's a book of truth. Notice how fairy tales start with once upon a time, right? Time and place don't matter. How does the Bible start? So-and-so begat so-and-so, okay? Now we're all of a sudden in real history. We're at a real place with real people. It's not a fairy tale once upon a time. They also show us the sovereign and electing purposes of God as he grafts in and grafts out at his good pleasure. These genealogies show us that in the purposes of God, and this is a big one, think about this, but I want this to hit home. World history serves church history. Why is there world history? Well, to serve church history, to serve the history that God is telling in his people, his story of redemption. It belongs to God and he has authored it to go a certain way. So this shows that all history has meaning. It's not random. And when we get to the genealogy of Jesus, again, the same thing happens. It shows that Jesus is a real person, born in a real place, and there's real human beings all around him. There's one story of a Bible uh, translator uh, with Wycliffe that was in a tribal situation. uh, And these Bible translators wanted to rush the Gospel of Matthew so they could get it to these people. And it's a painstaking process to learn the language of a people and then put it into an alphabet and words and write it, print Bibles. And these Bible, and, and so in the interest of time, they, the translators did away with the whole genealogy and they just got to what they thought was the meat of the matter. And finally, these Bibles show up and the tribal people were far more interested in the trucks that were delivering the Bibles than in the Bibles themselves. The Bible was uninteresting. The Gospel of Matthew was uninteresting. And it was very discouraging for the Bible translators But they kept at their task, and the next revision of the New Testament included the genealogies. And the tribal people came alive when these Bibles showed up. Oh, oh, so like Jesus was real. (laughs) Like real, real. Okay, This isn't Zeus. This isn't some fantasy god. And, And suddenly it struck them, no, no, these missionaries are telling us about someone real. Like real, real. And so the genealogies help point us to the realness of this as well. Although Matthew's genealogy only goes back to Abraham, Luke's goes back all the way to Adam. Uh, And this shows us there too, that Adam and Eve were real historical people. Noah was a historical person. Moses was a historical person. And this is important because people who try to blend uh, contemporary views of evolution or or old earth theistic evolution uh, run into a problem. Because where in these genealogies do we go from actual living, breathing, flesh and blood human people to fantasy people like Adam, right? The genealogy shows these are all real people, okay? And so even though there's generations uh, missing in this genealogy, and we'll talk about that later, uh, it does show an important truth in that in human history, we are dealing with thousands and not millions or billions of years. Even with the missing generations, we're still in the scope of thousands of years. There's also the issue of the discrepancy between Matthew and Luke's genealogies. And if you study that, you'll notice they part quite a ways and then kind of come back together. And what's that all about? Some have suggested that uh, Matthew's genealogy points us to Joseph and Luke's to Mary, but that is not 
likely. That's actually very unlikely. That view wasn't around until the 1500s. John Calvin says he was aware of this view, but he rejects it because he says that violates a plain reading of Scripture, and no one in the history of the church until now uh, believed that. So the reason these genealogies are different isn't because one points to Joseph and one points to Mary, most likely. The most likely solution to this is that Matthew had in mind a different objective with his genealogy than Luke did with his. So they record it differently, but both legitimately. Luke works with pure biological genetic descent. He follows the genetic tree all the way up. Pure genetic descent. Whereas with Matthew works with the kingly line of the throne being passed on. And you might think, well, that's the same thing, isn't it? Well, not necessarily. The place that these two depart is after Saul or is after David. Um, Matthew counts his genealogy through Solomon. And if you follow Luke's genealogy, he follows it through Solomon's brother, Nathan. Okay, so why do we move from Solomon to Nathan? If you want to, turn ahead in your Bible to Jeremiah 36. What is the mechanism by which God switches from Solomon to Nathan? If you don't want to turn there, then I'll read it out here. Starting in verse 27. Jeremiah 36, 27 and onward. Now after the king had burned the scroll with the words that Baruch wrote at Jeremiah's dictation, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Take another scroll and write on it all the former words that were in the first scroll, which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, had burnt. And concerning Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, you shall say, thus says the Lord. You have burned the scroll, saying, why have you written in it that the king of Babylon will certainly come and destroy this land and will cut off from it man and beast? Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, this is Solomon's descendant, he shall have none to sit on the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out to the heat by day and the frost by night. And I will punish him and his offspring and his servants for their iniquity. I will bring upon them the inhabitants of Jerusalem and upon the people of Judah all the disaster that I have pronounced against them, but they would not hear." So many generations after Solomon, his grandson neglects the word of God. He mocks the word of God. Remember, this is the story. He's cutting it in pieces and throwing it in the fire. And he gets cut off. That's it. That's the end of the road for that line. And so how are we going to do this royal genealogy? Well, we have to go all the way back up to David and then down the line of Nathan, who's going to carry on that seed. You see how this works? I'll give a timely contemporary analogy Uh, And that is our queen, our head of state, just recently passed away. Uh, And she took the crown from her father, George VI. And for those of you who are younger, I was not alive when this happened. So I may seem old, but I'm not that old. But Queen Elizabeth took the the crown from her father, George VI. But George VI was never in line to be king. His older brother Edward was. And his older brother Edward VIII was the king, but he wanted to marry a divorced American woman, so he had to give up his crown and it went to his little brother. Okay, you see how this works? Okay, so the crown moves sideways instead of straight down the line. It has to go back up sideways, uh, and then it comes. So in terms of succession, now we look, and well, now Charles has the throne, and so next it'll be William, and then little King George. Some of you who are young might live under another King George one day. That's what we expect. Uh, But... Uh, so we expect these things to work in a straight line, but they don't always. If it's an end of the road, it has to go back up and then move down the next family line. Okay? And so that's why Matthew records this through Solomon and Luke through Nathan, because the promise changes families. All in, this, all in the family of David, but the promise moves. Uh, and so legitimate succession doesn't necessarily follow a straight biological line all the way down. And you see those stories in the Bible where certain people and certain families are cut off forever because of their sin. How did David get the crown in the first place? Because Solomon got cut off, right? So God works in unexpected ways, cutting people out and then putting new ones in. Sometimes according to plan, often quite differently. And it makes sense that given Matthew's audience and Matthew's goal, he's interested in showing the kingly line of Christ because he is a Jew writing to fellow Jews. And so this was their point of inquiry. Is this a son of Abraham? Is he the royal seed of David? That's what they're interested in. And Matthew is showing them, yes, Jesus checks all those boxes. So because Matthew's goal is to show Jesus as the king of David's line and that he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament hope, 
the entire gospel is full and rich of connections to the Old Testament. And that's, in fact, why we have chosen this gospel to do next, is to show the harmony and the beauty and the connection between Old and New Testament as this promise carries on. So this is all technical stuff that's down here. But I want to look at the meaning behind what's happening in this family tree. Okay, not just the facts of it, but the meaning, the story, the romance behind it. And this gets us into something called typology. And typology is, it's a fascinating area of study because it tells us not just the historical data of the stories, but the meaning behind these stories. What's God doing? What's the story about? Okay, and so typology honors the fact that these are real historical events. This isn't an allegory. This doesn't move it into the realm of fantasy. Rather, what it does is gets us up to a 30,000-foot view so we understand what those details mean. It's a beautiful and fascinating thing once you start seeing it in Scripture. And that is what we want to spend uh, the bulk of our emphasis on this morning, is the typology present in Jesus' family. Verse 1, it says that this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And, as you probably know, Jesus Christ isn't the first and the last name, but it's a name and a title. And I think Keenan pointed uh, to that when he preached in Psalms. Okay? Uh, just in terms of the way we use last names, Jesus' last name might have been something like Ben David, or in English we'd say Davidson, because he's from that family, right? So Jesus' name, the way we do it, would have been Jesus Davidson, uh, but Jesus Christ isn't the first and last name, it's a name and a title. Christ meaning the anointed one. It's the, the Greek equivalent uh, to the word uh, Messiah in the Hebrew. It's the anointed one, the promised one. That's who Jesus is. And in verse 1, the genealogy is summarized with two steps, just David and Abraham. That's all uh, we see there. And we see a connection there. When God made his covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7, verse 16, he says, And my and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So David has a promise that his throne is going to be forever. That's a long time. Forever. Jeremiah repeats this promise in 33:17, where he says, For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And Matthew is concerned to show us that Jesus is this man. In our psalm series, we also looked at Psalm 2, which is a royal psalm describing the ascension of Christ back up to his father after his resurrection and how he takes the throne above all the nations. And the fact that Jesus fulfills this promise spiritually rather than politically uh, in no ways diminishes the reality. Uh, rather, it expands it. Okay? So Jesus isn't just the king of some little sliver in the Middle East. He's the king of the cosmos. <laughs> He's the king of the nations now. This promise just got a whole lot bigger than it was. We're not talking about a measurable amount of land in the Middle East. Jesus owns the nations. This promise got bigger, not smaller. He is ruling with his rod of iron. It's important to Matthew that Jesus is the son of David because it shows the legitimacy of David's throne finding an everlasting fulfillment in Jesus. He also points us to the fact that Jesus is the son of Abram. And similarly to David... God's covenant with Abram includes certain promises. It includes his own children, for example, but it also has an expanding mission. In Genesis 17, uh, God, when he cuts his covenant with Abraham, says that Abraham will be the father of many nations. And in Genesis 18 and 22, we read that all the nations are going to be blessed through Abraham. Well, that's interesting, because now there's already a promise for Gentile nations through Abraham. And it's interesting, his name Abram meant mighty father, and this man is 90 and childless. Imagine going into the town square, well, what's your name? Uh, mighty father. Oh, well, how many kids do you have? Well, none. Okay. okay. And, and then Abraham makes his name even bigger, the father of many. And again, think of what a joke that must have felt like. God renames him to be the father of many, and he's got no children, and he's in his 90s. So clearly, this isn't going to happen. But God's timing is perfect. And Galatians 3.16 tells us the culmination of this promise and how it finds its landing spot in Jesus Christ. In Galatians 3.16 it says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And your offspring 
who is Christ. Okay? So Jesus is the, the promised seed that will bless the nations through Abraham. Verse 17 breaks this genealogy down into thirds. Abram to David is 14 generations. David to the exile is 14. And the exile to Jesus is 14. And these periods have symmetry because it's like the sun. So the sun is rising on this promise of David. It shines there brightly for 14 generations as David's family sits on the throne. And then it sets in the 14 generations in exile when Israel has no nation and no homeland and they are uh, gone. The significance here of showing the symmetry of the 14 generations, especially because we know from the other genealogies, there's, there's pieces missing here. So why does Matthew highlight 14 generations? He skips people and, and you can put it together with the other genealogies. Why the symmetry of 14? What's he trying to do there? Uh, something that we don't do today because our alphabet works differently, uh, but something that was very common to the Jews was something called gematria, which is like Roman numerals, where letters are assigned a number. Okay? Uh, and so you can make someone's name, or you can make a city's name, or you can make different words into a numeric value. Right? For instance, in Revelation, we hear that 666 is the number of a man. It's the number of a man. Okay? Because you can take his name and assign it a numeric value, just like you can with Roman numerals. Uh, and here, too, if you take the numeric value of David, it's 14. Okay? And David is the central character here. Uh, to a Jewish audience, 14, oh yeah, of course, we're talking about David. So, of course, 14... Uh, is, is how we would summarize and organize this genealogy because it's talking about David and his promised son. <clears throat> One concept that we've been trying to work through quite heavily in the Sunday school hour before church, and you should all be there, um, especially once we have kids Sunday school. <laughs> but one concept that we've been working through quite a bit is the doctrine of God and how our conception of God needs to inform everything that we study. Whether you want to study history, whether you want to study economics, biology, the doctrine of God needs to be at the top of it all informing us, showing us how we properly approach this topic. And I'd say that, in, that stands here too in terms of history. History happens because God has authored the story for a particular way for his ultimate glory and our ultimate good. And so we need to see uh, the meaning behind what's happening here in this genealogy, the story behind it. And I will suggest that this story, this story starts in the garden. In Genesis 3.15, when God curses his creation after the fall, in the midst of cursing the serpent, he looks at the serpent and says, that there will be forever enmity, there will be a forever war between the serpent and the woman. And he tells the serpent that the woman's seed will crush your head, but you will bruise his heel in the process. Okay, So there's a head crusher coming from the woman that's going to crush the serpent, but somehow the serpent is going to harm the head crusher in the way. And Eve names her first child Cain, seeming to think that this is the one. Right? God promised a, a, a seed from me, out came the seed, this must be the one. Right? Good. That took nine months, so I'm glad that, was, that long story is over. Right? Here comes my Savior. Um, and she names Cain accordingly, but clearly we know that that's not how it went. The story is much, much, much longer than that. It's like a river that flows through history. God's sovereign providence is at play as he works with the individual families, breaks in and grafts in as he pleased. So the path to the seed, to the promised Messiah, is the reason the Jewish people were so intrigued by the descendants that they were generating. And it's also why the genealogies are actually very interesting. God isn't just observing this process, but he's guiding and shaping a big story. And so typology becomes possible because God is in the details. He's showing us. He's telling a story in every little detail that happens along the way. Starting with Abram, the father of Isaac. So God's very first covenant is with Abraham, and he goes to work getting a seed from this man in unlikely circumstances, in old age. It's an unlikely birth story that Abram and Sarah would have children, and they do. They have a son, Isaac. And despite Abram trying to speed God along and siring Ishmael, remember he sires Ishmael first, so Ishmael's the older brother, but Isaac is the brother of promise, the legitimate offspring. But what does God demand? He demands to test Abram's faith by taking Isaac up and sacrificing him on Mount Moriah. Abraham is commanded to go sacrifice his one and only son on Mount Moriah. 
Come back 1,500 years later. It's not called Mount Moriah anymore. It just so happens that it's the same exact place that Christ's cross was planted in the ground. You see that? See how this works? (laughs) Abram, you need to give up your one and only son. God does it at the exact same spot. This is how typology works. God's telling a story through Abram, or through Isaac and Abram. Then Isaac becomes the father of Jacob. And here we have a story of twins, of Jacob and Esau. And despite God's promise to Rebekah that the older would serve the younger, so Jacob, the second son, was the, the son of promise before they were yet born. Nevertheless, Isaac favors Esau because he's a rough man. He's more of a dad's boy. He's rough and tumble. He's interested in hunting and the kind of stuff dad's interested in. Whereas Jacob is soft, so mom favors Jacob, right? There's a favorite despite the promise of God. It says in the birth narrative, and this is an interesting detail that we might want to throw away, but I'd suggest you just hold on to it. In Genesis 25, 25, we hear that Esau was a hairy and a rough man, and he was red when he came out. Who cares? One of our kids was jaundiced when they came out. Big. <laughs> Why is it important that Esau was red? Hold that thought. There's a description of how the promise moves from what we would expect to be Esau to Jacob, right? So there's deception on all the parents. Uh, God promises the mother that it's going to be the second, not the first. The father favors the first, so he's about to put his birthright on him. He wants to. Through deception, the blessing ends up going on the right son. But everyone in this story is a sinner. Everyone's doing the wrong thing in this story. And amazingly, the blessing ends up on the right son. Everyone's in the wrong. Isaac is in the wrong. Or pardon me, Jacob. Yeah, Isaac is in the wrong. Rebecca's in the wrong. Jacob is in the wrong for deceiving his brother. And Esau is a fool for selling his birthright. Look at all the layers of deception here. And yet the blessing ends up exactly where God said it will, on the younger son. On Jacob, not on Esau. The second, not the first. Interesting. Jacob then fathers Judah and his brothers. So now we have Jacob the deceiver ending up with God's blessing and as a testimony that God is working by merit or by grace and not by merit. That much is clear. If God's working with merit, neither of these twins can take uh, the blessing. But Jacob has it by grace. Jacob has it by mercy. And he fathers the sons who would become the 12 tribes of Israel. And so we hear we have a rapid expansion of God's covenant people spreading out. And for as much information as we have in our Bibles about, uh, uh, about Joseph, and Joseph in his own way typifies Christ. He's the favored son of his father. He's unjustly betrayed by his own brothers, showing the enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Uh, And Joseph's brothers plan to kill him at first, and then someone says, well, let's not kill him, let's just sell him, and he ends up in Egypt. Remember what happened on Jesus' flight? Right? Jesus' parents end up in Egypt because there's the threat of death. And so you see, in some ways, Joseph is following the footprints that Jesus is going to take later. Through his exaltation, once he gets to Egypt, he partially fulfills God's promise to his great-grandfather Abram as he blesses the nations with food during their great famine. But despite all that we hear about Joseph, it's not Joseph, but Judah, through who the promise is going to continue. Judah starts off as a bitter and corrupt young man. He's behind the the mistreatment of Jacob, of Joseph. Sorry, too many names. I'm getting confused here. I'm sorry. I'll try to be more note-bound. But when Jacob is scared of losing his firstborn, Reuben, Judah actually offers his life as a ransom. So here we have Judah offering himself as a substitute for his brother. Isn't that interesting? And then later, you know when they're leaving, then Benjamin is accused of stealing a cup from the palace. Right? Remember that story? This is why learning these stories is so important. So we have the data bits to see what's happening here. Who steps in and says, I'll sacrifice my life if someone's guilty? It's Judah. Judah has grown up, and Judah has learned responsibility. He's the one who's now representing this family and offering his own life as a substitute for others. Interesting how that happens. And when Jacob calls his sons together in Genesis 49 to bless them, he calls Judah a lion's cub. 
and promises that the scepter shall never depart from Judah. What's Jesus called in the book of Revelation? A lion from the tribe of Judah. Isn't that interesting? That lion cub did exactly as promised. Moving on from Judah, he becomes the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And we know this story too. Judah marries a Canaanite woman and he has three sons by her, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. He gets a wife named Tamar for his first son. And uh, he's a wicked man, so he's struck dead and, and he dies and Tamar is childless. So doing the right thing under their custom, he gives the second son, Onan, to Tamar so she can carry on the seed of, uh, of the older brother. But Onan is jealous and he doesn't want to raise what is essentially counted as his brother's children. So it says he spilt his seed on the ground. He didn't want to sire children that would be considered his brother's. And God is angry at that because he doesn't give Tamar what she is due. And so God strikes him dead. And this poor woman is still childless. And Judah's terrified that this woman is like a curse on the family. If the third son goes to her, he's dead too. So he holds back his third son, doesn't give uh, him to Tamar, trying to, to keep his son safe. Meanwhile, all he's doing is trying to thwart the purposes of God so Tamar can't have the seed. So does anyone remember what Tamar does? Okay, Tamar's actually, in an interesting way, working by faith. Yes, she's sinning. Everyone's sinning in these stories. But isn't it interesting? She wants to lay hold of the seed of Judah. Maybe she sees there's something significant there that we maybe don't expect that she did see. But she is desperate for that promised seed. So what does she do? She dresses up like a prostitute and seduces her father-in-law. Okay? This isn't something you do out of lust. I can't imagine many beautiful young women are interested in seducing an old man. Okay? That's not what's happening here. What's happening here is she is trying to lay hold of God's promise to have a seed by Judah. And so Judah sins by taking a prostitute. They have a sexual encounter. She gets pregnant, interestingly, with twins. He doesn't have money to pay her. He still doesn't know who he had just slept with. So he gives her some personal goods as a deposit until he can get home and get the money to pay her for her prostitution services. One of the things he gives her is a scepter. Hold that thought. She comes back, pregnant, and her father-in-law is angry because here this woman is pregnant by someone that's not his son. And so he demands to know who did this because this, this adulterous woman needs to be burnt with fire now. And Tamar says, well, I'll show you who did it. Uh, the guy who did this, who got me pregnant, he gave me some personal items uh, as a deposit until he could pay me. Do you know who this belongs to? And he sees it's his scepter, his staff. He's done this, and he's torn apart in repentance. Surely she has been more righteous than me. He goes from wanting to burn his daughter-in-law for being an adulteress to saying, what have I done? Look at this. So many layers of sin. And it's interesting. The scepter did not depart from Judah. He gets it back. Tamar gives him his scepter back. Just like Grandpa promised. Tamar did get pregnant in this encounter, and then she bears twins, Perez and Zerah. Who remembers that story? When these twins are born, the first is pretty eager to get out, pumps his fist out. (laughs) The midwife grabs it, ties a little scarlet yarn around it so they know who the first one is. He decides, no, I don't want to be born first after all. Pulls that arm back in, and the other brother, Perez, comes out first fully, even though Zerah is the firstborn with this scarlet thread marked on him. And once again, it's not the firstborn who's going to carry on the promise, as we might expect, but the secondborn. And this is fitting since these carriers of the seed are meant to typify Christ, who himself is the second Adam. I think that's why so many of the second brothers or the lower-ranking brothers get exalted to this place is because Christ is the second Adam. We always expect everything is focused on the firstborn, firstborn, firstborn. Well, the first Adam didn't do us any favors. It's not surprising that God would use unlikely characters uh, to typify the second Adam, Jesus Christ. And so these second brothers, these second twins, shouldn't surprise us that they're included in here. But what is the mechanism? Here again, we saw how uh, Solomon's family was cut off. What's the mechanism by which the second twin takes the birthright of the older twin? Well, in Joshua 7, 
we read the story about Israel being defeated at the battle of Ai. And when Joshua weeps about this before the Lord, that they have just lost a, a crucial battle, the Lord tells him that Israel was given over because of sin in the camp. Someone had taken some of the devoted items and put them in his tent, and now the whole country was suffering because of this. So now they have to find out who the culprit is. And they narrow it down, narrow it down, narrow it down until they find Achan had done this. Remember what happens to Achan. He gets stoned to death and they cover him with a pile of rocks so everyone will remember, don't disobey God. This is what happens when you disobey God. And so there's this pile of rocks that is there to commemorate the stoning of Achan and the way he caused Israel to lose this battle. Achan was a powerful prince, and he was the great-grandson of Zerah, the first twin, the one with the scarlet thread on his wrist. And after he's stoned and covered by the people, his line is cut off. That's part of the curse on him. Your line is cut off for good. And so again, what do we have to do? Back up the family tree, (laughs) down the other side. This is how the first twin gets cut out, and the second twin gets back in. So Zerah's line is cut off. The lineage goes back up to Judah so it can start down again through Perez. Achan's distant cousin, and by my accounting it was his third cousin, Selmon, who's a descendant of Perez, marries Rahab the prostitute. And she's in this genealogy as well. Rahab had given cover to Joshua and the spies when they came out to spy Jericho. and And they promised that they would protect her and her family for the favor that she showed them. And when they're ready to attack, they say, well, you need to mark out your house, so we'll spare you and your family. What do they tell her to hang out her window so they know what to spare her? A scarlet rope. Interesting. The red twin is disinherited. The twin with the scarlet thread is disinherited. And his brother is brought back in through a red thread. Interesting. This scarlet thread is woven through this story. It's remarkable that God does not waste details. It's actually beautiful. My family made fun of me a few times. I, researching this, and you can just present such a small amount in a sermon like this. There's so much there. And it's so beautiful and so rich, it brings me to tears, and my family doesn't catch on. But <laughs> if you do, you see how rich and how beautiful this is. God spares no details in telling these stories. So like I say, we saw the red twin Esau being grafted out of the promise, and then Zerah, the twin with the scarlet cord, being grafted out. And now Rahab the prostitute is the tool that God uses to graft Perez and his family back into the promise with her scarlet cord and her marriage to Salmon in the line of Perez. And the scarlet thread is found one more time in Revelation 17 and 18. It weaves all through Scripture. And then we know that Selman uh, was the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. So Selman and Rahab have a son who becomes a kinsman redeemer for Ruth. Another story we love from the Bible. And if you're wondering, well, is that just a romance story there to lighten the mood between all these stories of gore and violence? No, it's not. And there's one thing we really need to get. It's so important to learn these Bible stories. It's so important to teach your kids. But do it right Please do not turn these stories into moral tales as though that's their main purpose. This is a story about Jesus from beginning and end. Teach it that way. Show how Jesus is there. That's where this is going. Okay? These people are not moral examples. Do you want to teach your little daughter to seduce her father-in-law? No, of course not. That can't be what the story's about. Okay? The story is about God's faithfulness. The story God is telling. So when you tell about David and Goliath, it's about Jesus. It's not about taking the five smooth stones of financial management and wealth planning and and hard work. That's totally, totally missing it. It's a story about Jesus beginning to end. Old and New Testament agreed. One story. And if you know these stories, then you know that Boaz very clearly serves as a type of Christ. And he's perhaps one of the clearest in all the Old Testament. And this story goes that Elimelech and his family leave the promised land for Moab during a time of famine, not totally unlike Adam and Eve's expulsion from the garden. Moab was a foreign land established by Lot in his incestuous relationship with his daughter. Remember that story? Again, is that a moral tale? No, it's not. It's a story about Jesus. 
The Moabites are descended from Lot having sex with his daughter. That's the kind of people they were, and that's how they were viewed by the Jews. As the patriarch dies, Elimelech's sons marry Moabite women, and then when Ruth, a Moabitess, becomes widowed, she returns with her mother-in-law to Bethlehem. And Ruth is repeatedly referred to as a Moabite woman, drawing attention to the fact that she is an outsider. She's a Gentile. She's unclean. Boaz becomes the redeemer for Ruth and her family, and it is said that he covers her with the corner of his garment, perhaps a picture of the way Christ's righteousness covers us and provides us with provision and protection. And so now this Moabite widow has found a redeemer from the tribe of Judah in the town of Bethlehem. In the town of Bethlehem, the city of David. And although she's a Gentile, the book of Ruth records that there are expanded covenant blessings for Boaz in redeeming her and her family's land. Boaz is clearly in the line of Abram's seed, who we've seen, and he's promised to bless all the nations. And his redemption and marriage to a Gentile woman so clearly pictures how the promised seed is on an always expanding, progressing mission to send covenant blessings out to the nations as promised to Abram. Boaz is a man who not only kept the law, but he exceeded it in his care for the weak, for the widow, and for the orphan, clearly typifying Christ. And in the book of Ruth, you see at one place, I think it's in chapter 4, even the everyday people, the people who aren't significant enough to get named in the story, look at what's happening, and they pronounce praises on Boaz for, for these covenant blessings that are coming from foreign lands. And they, they clearly see that something significant is happening right before their eyes, that Boaz would take in this disreputable widow. They clearly know something significant is happening, and they heap praise and blessings uh, on the nation and on the people because of what Boaz has just done. Boaz was an heir to the promise, and his grafting in of a Gentile woman has deep significance. They have a son named Obed, and in doing so, they become the great-grandparents of King David. We've just worked through the Psalms, so it's fitting in our minds that we see what a clear type of Christ David was. He's a shepherd king from the tribe of Judah in Bethlehem, which later becomes known as the city of David. He's a warrior who fulfills his call as the seed of the woman as he crushes the head of Goliath, the seed of the serpent. And that's why there's a complete description even of Goliath's scaly armor. This is a bad dude. He's clearly the son of the serpent. And the son of, or the seed of the woman crushes his head and brings it back to Jerusalem and buries it at the same place, again, where Jesus is eventually going uh, to impale that rock with his cross, the final head crusher. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And so here again, you see how David's line continues through Solomon, through his marriage of Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. And this marriage started under very poor circumstances with adultery and the murder of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. Again, is this a moral lesson to teach your kids how, how to court a king? <laughs> right? Is that the lesson here? No, it's not. It's a story about Jesus. There's so much sin, so much adultery, so much shame in Jesus' family tree that we may be wondering, why would God tell the story this way? Yeah, we know it is this way, but why? Why would it be told this way? The women in this genealogy are some of the most fascinating figures. The promise to Eve and her seed starts the line of women. And it's odd since the seed, biologically speaking, is what the man contributes to his offspring. The man produces the seed, not the woman. But because men are designed to be covenant heads and representatives for those around them, most notably their wives and children, Original sin and original guilt are transferred by the man, by the husband, by Adam. And so the virgin birth that we get to allows Jesus to be truly human. He's truly the son of a woman, but he does so in such a way that original sin is not imputed to him. He is not the son of Adam. He is the seed of the woman in a way that no other man has been. And so this trail of women from Eve down to Mary is unexpected. The women in this family tree are all links in this chain to the woman's seed. And there's a few things that stand out. These women are all non-Israelites. 
The first is Tamar, a woman who was left childless and acting as a whore. The second is Rahab, who was actually a whore. The third is Ruth, who was from a nation that acted as a whore. And the fourth is Bathsheba, who committed adultery with King David. And then the final woman before Christ is a pure young virgin. The story of tracing the seed shows us how the fathers of Jesus typologically point us to him over centuries of struggle, of God working out his sovereign purposes of grafting in, grafting out, expanding these promises, and then whittling them back down so he can send them out again. And the story of the women is the story of Christ's bride, a disgraced whore who is gloriously transformed into a beautiful and virginal bride. That's us. That's us. God wants us despite our disgrace. And he is so committed to loving his bride that he makes us beautiful. Tracing the one who will crush the serpent's head, the seed of the woman from Eve, through Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and then finally Mary, is the ultimate, the best, kill the dragon, get the girl story you will ever encounter. It really is. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. And it's because of this story that we make up all our prince and dragon and princess stories. That's why we find it interesting, because that's what the world was made for. Of course that's an interesting story. That's what you're here for. Kill the dragon, get the girl. That's the mission of Jesus. That's what this is about. Christ comes into the world perfectly, despite a background full of sin and corruption, in order to redeem us, to gather up a beautiful bride for himself, to take something ugly, disgraceful, and unwanted and transform it into something so glorious that she will be able to enjoy her husband forever, free from shame for all eternity. And so the application for us, we are on the other side of Christ. We're no longer looking forward to a Messiah. But you know what? There's a whole crop of little people here. And these little people are all our seed. And Lord willing, they're going to produce their own seed one day. And these covenant promises are still ongoing. God is still working with his people. The gospel is still going out. And we need to have the eyes to see how important these little people are. How important it is to get the gospel into their little hearts so they will continue to live and to work by faith as it goes out. This isn't automatic. We have to teach it. We have to have the eyes of faith that we don't just look back. Oh, my grandpa was a deacon. I guess I'm good. No, no, no. What kind of children am I producing? When we brought Katie, our firstborn, home from the hospital, it just struck me. Pray for this little girl's salvation, and then, of course, I start praying for her husband, Lord willing, one day. Well, where does that stop? Well, of course, we want godly grandchildren. Well, where does that stop? Eventually, we just pray for as many generations as God will come, as he will give us from our family. That needs to be our prayer, and we need to work as though we're going to have great-grandchildren. We need to think that way of godly seed passing on these gospel promises to your children and to your grandchildren. And that starts at home. Teach these stories. Teach Jesus. Teach the gospel. Look with the eyes of faith so you're looking forward like Abraham and David and Tamar and not backward like the Pharisees. Let's pray. Father God, you are good. You have put so many twists and turns and unexpected details in these stories of how you got us from the garden and the promise you gave to Eve about her seed to getting us there so many thousands of years later. Lord, so many unexpected turns, so much sin, so much disgrace. Lord, so much accumulated shame in each of our own families. Lord, give us eyes as we encounter this gospel, as we start to learn about your son in the gospel of Matthew. Lord, give us eyes to see who he is, what he has done, what the story is all about. Lord, help us to not just read this as boring words on a page, but to be enchanted by the story that you are telling with your creation. Lord, help us. I pray today that we would learn the importance of passing your gospel promises on to those who will come after us, that we would be aiming for godly grandchildren and great-great-great-grandchildren who we will never get to see. 
Lord, make us faithful that you would build your kingdom through us, through your promises. Lord, and help us to not look back like the Pharisees, but to look ahead like those who put their faith in you, trusting you all the way. Lord, I pray for any here that do not have these eyes of faith, who do not know you in a saving way, who are still bearing the weight of their own sin and their own shame and their own disgrace. Lord, I pray that they would know the sweetness of forgiveness. Lord, send your Holy Spirit to each one who does not know you. Lift their sin, lift their burden. Help them to rejoice in you, in your free offer of pardon. Lord, and for those of us who do know you, help us to dig deeper into your promises, into the riches of your words. Give us new eyes to see this gospel and the story you are telling with your creation and with us. Pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. The charge is this. The story of Christ starts in the garden when the first woman is promised a seed that will crush the head of her enemy, the serpent. The story doesn't end when Cain is born, but becomes like a river, winding its way through history, often in unexpected ways, but always according to the design of God. Because we are slow to learn, God is slow to teach. He takes centuries of retelling the same stories of Abram, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Judah, Boaz, and David, so we can start to grasp what kind of a man Jesus is going to be. The unlikely inclusion of Jesus' grandmothers adds a layer of richness and depth as we see our own shame and idolatry in their disgrace and heartbreak. The joining of these grandfathers to these grandmothers paints a beautiful tapestry and typology of Christ and his bride, the perfect and final covenant head, law keeper, promised seed, redeemer, head crusher, and shepherd king being united to a woman full of shame and in need of a savior to restore her to her natural beauty and putting her in a place where she is redeemed by her very own seed. The story of these men is the story of Jesus, And the story of these women is the story of us. It is the story of why we continue to enchant ourselves with stories of killing dragons and saving girls. As we embark on this Gospel of Matthew, look at it with new eyes. Look at it as the bridge between Old and New Testament, between the Old World and the New World. Look at it as the bridge between God and man. And now please receive the benediction from Hebrews 13, 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And go in peace.